I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Okay, it falls upon me to kick things off, I think. Uh, I'm Jen. Hi. Um, I'm the uh, editor and the introducer of the Unmapped Country. And uh, thanks all for coming. This is Anne Anne Quinn's first book launch in 45 years. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! I hope she's chuffed. I really do. Um, So um, I am not going to talk for long, uh, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about the story of these stories and how the book came about and came to happen. Uh, And I also wanted to uh, read from one of them as well. Um, So Anne Quinn, if she's known at all, I guess, is mainly known for her novels. Um, But she also wrote short stories throughout her life. From throughout her writing career, she was um, writing short stories. And um, she was really into writing short stories, actually. Um, some of them were published in the time, at the time. They were published in magazines during the, the 60s. They were in things like Ambit magazine, in Nova, in the London magazine. Uh, some of them were anthologized. Uh, but a lot of them never saw the light of day. Uh, some were never published. Um, some were never finished. But it's clear, I think, from reading her letters with her publishers that she really wanted them to be published. She really had an ambition that this collection would come out. So. I'm really pleased that it's happened only 50 years later. I'm not sure, how many of you have read her novels? Yeah, loads of people, cool. So um, I think she really suits the short story form. If you've read her novels, then you'll know that um, to enter Anne Quinn's world is kind of a weird thing. Like her world is like a really, I mean, often a very sort of sticky, heady, uh, claustrophobic, hothouse sort of world, which really lends itself to the more, the shorter, more condensed form. So I think it really suits her. Uh, so you should definitely buy the book. I want to say um, next a few things about how the collection came to be, because uh, it's, um, it's kind of a story in itself. So I was a, a, an unassuming um, postgraduate researcher in an American archive, just sitting there minding my own business. And um, <laughs> I came across mention of the stories in her letters. And I sort of couldn't resist the wild goose chase, really. I came across a few stories and I came across a few more. What ended up happening is I spent seven years collecting them from her ex-boyfriends and her old mates and her peers, you know, cold calling these 85-year-old dudes in New Mexico and saying, hey, do you remember your girlfriend from like 50 years ago? 
do you have a story lying around? And um, they really came good. They often did have stories lying around, and uh, they sent them to me. And uh, yeah, over the course of seven years, I gathered them together in a in a crappy old cardboard folder, and here we are. But so, so it wasn't always an easy process putting the book together, and it's also kind of a weird thing. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing to attempt to, as an editor, to sort of speak on behalf of someone who's gone. It's kind of a an uncomfortable thing for me, and so I've. Uh, kind of in the run-up to this book actually coming out in the world after all this time, I've been thinking a bit about like what drew me to Anquin in the first place and like why I did this perverse thing, you know? For as long as I've been interested in books and I've been interested in literature, that's my interest has always been accompanied by the sense that this was a culture that this that wasn't really for me, that I didn't really belong to. I, I often felt like a kind of in, interloper in book culture. And I have to say that when I first read Anquin as a, a student at university, she was one of the first writers that I read that made me feel like, ah, this is this brilliant outsider who is mine, who belongs to me, who, who is a bit of me, you know, if you like. So that's why I think, that's, well, that's part of the reason why I think she's so special and singular. She's this kind of brilliant outlier in a tradition that can often seem kind of a bit exclusive and a bit precious and sometimes a bit tedious even. So that's my take on Quinn. Uh, without further ado, I want to read from one of her stories. This is one of my faves from the collection. Uh, it's only a, a brief thing. It's um, a story called Ghost Worm, which is it's kind of the, a, a love story. It's kind of an obsessive love story between um, a woman and her ex-lover's ashes. So make of that what you will. Listen, the bells, all the bells ringing. Must be Sunday. They'll be thronging in the plaza in their best. Stalls of sizzling meat crawling with flies and buzzards overhead, waiting. And back home, yes, still home, they'll be having a TV newspaper vegetated day, walking after their dogs in parks, thin men with thin growls, dreaming of muzzling their fat wives. Timber, a purple woman shouts. Come here, and there's a crashing through the trees. Behind the trees, a strip of steel that is a lake, and beyond, a tower of light, a rocket. You sound nostalgic. No, shit. The only thing to do there is to spend it in bed. An orgy, yes, yes, an orgy of roast beef and Yorkshire pud. Ah, miss that cup of tea. Just the words, have a nice cup of tea, dear. The kettle's boiling. Won't take a minute, you'll feel better. The safe, com comfortable rituals. The monotony that keeps the fantasies moving. Do you still fantasize about killing your father? Chop him up into little pieces? Yes, why not? I'm playing at sanity anyway. Ah, you think you're mad? Never. Neither sane nor insane. The thin edge I tread and I want to go over. And end up like me. Yes, perhaps it would be an experience for you. That's what you want. Experience in caps, period. To live beyond myself. Such a craving. Ashes into ashes. Never marked into the middle of the forehead. Ash Wednesday. Envied those who could. You have the chance now. Sackcloth. The lot. Yes, haven't washed for days. When was the last time hands felt water? The sun in a wave. High waves tossed her under. He rode out, sea at night, an express train over rocks. Part of dreams. You weren't fucking me then. Could have been anyone. That's right, I was fucking mermaids. Your wife. Wives. All the beautiful women I saw, didn't see. They saw what a bastard you were. All dying to save me. Save the image. So many images. The roles were a drag. What did you want? What was wanted? What wanted of me now? Carry on. Do what you have to do. Deliver the ashes and then make things happen. You have the power. Without you, I'm with you. Is it your power? Is it your face, eyes, voice without your body? 
Look, those eyes between stems looking in, always looking in, seeing too much, hearing too much. How can I go on? Words with double intentions, objects with triple signs. Nothing is as simple as it was. Mind blown, ghost worm riddled. Listen, what do you hear? Mermaids, drums, soft bodies rolling, a train carrying the night across the border. I think you could go around the world, Jen, reading uh, Anne, Anne Quinn. Thanks. Yeah, why not? Very kind. It's terrifying to think that there might be a researcher uh, who, who you know, would ring up and say, have you got any of Deborah's early poetry that she wrote when she was uh, 19? Lucky no th- one's got that. I th- I'm going to write something now. <laughs> <laughs> I bought some in a charity shop. Julia's just told me that she's found an anthology of poetry and there's some poems for myself from 30 years ago. Yeah. And I'm quite nervous about, about seeing Working them. on a collection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Anne Quinn, well before we can talk about experimental writing, I think we have to talk about modernism because when I was 26, which is about the age I think Quinn was when she wrote her first novel, Berg. It was published when she was 28, wasn't it? Modernism was sort of still considered a kind of degenerate continental experiment. Uh, The British didn't really have a taste for it. So when I started to make a bookshelf of my own, I was sort of making my own canon, and all the usual suspects were on it. And it was modernism. So, you know, there was Joyce and Beckett and, 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 and Pinter, um, not yet Anne Quinn, George Bataille, Genet, had a big crush on Genet, all of that. And, uh, and they were mostly men. And the other books that I, I was collecting were the Paris Review anthologies of interviews with writers. And if you have a look at those early covers, they were all men, all of them. I think Iris Murdoch got through and um, Muriel Spark and all of that. So just think about being a female and a writer. And there on my shelf are really at this point, the sort of first bit of it, uh, no female writers. Then things get interesting. We have Marguerite Durat. Um, we have Catherine Mansfield, Virginia Woolf, of course, Juna Barnes, Sylvia Plath, Christine Brooke Rose, and so on. And then one day I was in a charity shop and I saw a Calder book and I reached for it, not because I knew anything about Anne Quinn, but because I trusted Calder, and he, many, many of his books were on a bookshelf of my own. So there's a thing, just, just sort of trusting a publisher's list, a publisher's mm. taste. That's a very big, you know, that's a big deal. And I bought Berg because of that. I did not know uh, anything about Anne Quinn. I was interested in her staccato sentences the vitality of the writing, the wit of it, the confidence of it, the irreverence, the cadence of it. And most of all, I was interested in what she was doing with narrative. Because if narrative is a sort of behavior, she was, she, she used narrative in Berg 
This is sort of the, a young writer, okay? This is the 26-year-old about to start my own novel, looking at Anne Quinn. Not that I wanted to write like her, and not like she was my favorite writer, but feeling her at work, really rolling up her sleeves, pounding the typewriter. That's what I got from, from her. Um, narrative does a lot of things, but one of the things that it more interesting things that it does is that it's, it's there to sort of hold psychic coherence. And she wasn't interested in that. She wasn't interested in psychic coherence because she wasn't particularly coherent. <laughs> and that, so, so, I, so I could see how she'd sort of used narrative to hold rupture, and that interested me a lot. I remember writing that in a sort of journal, you know, Anne Quinn. Berg. Uh, so, so a lot has been said about the first line in that book. I'm mm. so bored with hearing about the first line in Berg. But I'm, and I say, I'm sorry to torture you if you know it. You know, a man called Berg, who changed his name to Greg, came to a seaside town intending to kill his father. So when I looked, up, looked her up in Wikipedia just as I left, listen to this. This is about Quinn's suicide. A man called Albert Fox witnessed a woman walking into the sea and contacted the police. It sounds like the first line in, in Berg. The cadence is the same and everything else. And that really, really interests me. So I forgot all about uh, Quinn until I read Passages, which is her penultimate book before she died. Uh, it was published in, in 1969 and then reprinted by Dorky Press. Two characters, a woman in search of her brother and the woman's lover in search of himself. Here's a paragraph from it. Bundle of chickens tied together by their legs fluttered on the stairs. We were waved through control. Men half drunk asleep. She had seaweed in her hair pieces of melon skin round her nails. The interpreter stood at the window, his face buried in a dog. Land crossed staircases round a tower, black flights of steps. Paper flowers, beer cans, wine bottles surrounded small white crosses. Unmade roads curled above chasms. Sea left behind, interior of mountains yawned in all its ridges, clusters of white buildings, olive trees, cypresses. And what I really like about passages, apart from um, <clears throat> her excitement about being out of Britain, you know, Berg having given her some money to travel just to get the hell out, uh, she's, you know, I, I can see her writing cypresses, beer cans, in a cemetery, sort of circling all the, all the white crosses, she's, she's become a much more confident writer, and she, she, she's sort of working towards, in some ways, more complexity in passages than in anything else. And then finally, when I was writing swim, my novel Swimming Home, I came across an, an obituary for Anne Quinn, and the first line was, Anne Quinn went for a swim and never returned. 
And I thought that was a bit creepy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> On so many levels. So when I started to write um, up the character of Kitty Finch, who is a poet, and she has stalked, she's got, it's not, she's got a poem, and she's stalked a famous British poet, and she's, the poem's called Swimming Home, and she wants him to read it, and he doesn't want to read it, but this, he, this, these three paragraphs are about him finally getting round to reading it. And he notices that she's using a lot of etceteras in her poetry. For example, my mother says I'm the only jewel in her crown, but I've made her tired with all my etc. So now she walks with sticks. To accept her language, this is Josef Novogradsky looking at this poem, of which I only give three lines. And he, this is what he's thinking. To accept her language was to accept that she held him, her reader, in great esteem. He was being asked to make something of it. And what he made of it was that every etc. concealed something that could not be said. If he could not talk to her about her poem, what good was he? He might as well move to the countryside and run the tombola stand at the church fete. He might as well take up writing stories set in the declining years of empire, featuring a dusty black humber with an aged loyal driver. She was an astute reader and she was troubled and she had suicidal thoughts. But then what did he want his readers to be like? Were they required to eat all their vegetables, have a regular monthly salary and pension fund with gym membership and a loyalty card to their favorite supermarket? Her gaze, the adrenaline of it, was like a stain. The etceteras in her poem, a bright light, a high noise. And if all this wasn't terrifying enough, her attention to the detail of every day was even more so to pollen and struggling trees and the instincts of animals, to the difficulties of pretending to be relentlessly sane, to the way he walked, to the nuance of mood and feeling in them all. She was as receptive as it was possible to be, an explorer, an adventurer, a nightmare. Every moment with her was a kind of emergency. Her words always too direct, too truthful, too raw. So that was my sort of seance uh, with Anne Quinn, you know, via, via that kid finish. Okay, yeah, um, there's a lot there that I'd like to, um, to pick up on. I first came to Anne Quinn back in 2004. Um, I was an undergraduate, uh, a postgraduate, sorry, master's student in uh, literature and visual culture at the University of Sussex. I'd grown up near Brighton. Uh, Brighton always felt like my town, my city. Um, and it still does, even though I haven't lived there for a long time now. But I was sort of looking for, you know, I, I was reading a lot of the authors, the sort of European authors that Deborah just mentioned. You know, I've been reading like Marguerite Duras, Natalie Saror, Alain Rob Grier, 
um, Claude Simon, a lot of the Nouveau Roman authors from post-war France. And, you know, I was interested, was there a domestic equivalent? I was doing a module on modernist and postmodernist fiction in Britain under the, the tutelage of, um, of, a, of a great uh, scholar at Sussex called Alistair Davis, who I, I owe quite a lot to, actually. But, um, you know, I was very intrigued by the fact that a lot of the writers we were studying were people who'd been based in Britain, um, but were largely sort of like North American emigres. You know, we're looking at people like Ford Maddox Ford, um, T.S. Eliot, Wyndham Lewis, um, you know, obviously Ezra Pound, sort of around the fringes of those circles, HD and people like that. And, you know, I was, I was intrigued, um, you know, a lot of the few British authors we read, I didn't really go for, you know, D.H. Lawrence, I found a bit kind of stuffy in some ways and, you know, I found his prose a bit, um, leaden for me. Um, of much more interest to me was this circle of, of post-war kind of quote-unquote experimental writers. I say quote-unquote because B.S. Johnson in particular, who was kind of, I think, the most visible of those writers, particularly loathed the term experimental. But I came to Quinn through Johnson, um, who was having a bit of a moment in 2004, like Jonathan Coe's really fantastic biography mm. of, um, of Johnson was out. And if any of you haven't read that, you really hardly recommend it. And I was also uh, working on my master's uh, dissertation on Rainer Heppenstall, who was uh, about 20 years older than Johnson and Quinn, but personally acquainted with them and very much a sort of um, spiritual forefather and also published through, through Calder. And there was a lot of prestige attached to publishing through Calder. And like Deborah at the age of sort of 22, 23, if I came across an author who was published by Calder, I took them very seriously. Um, as I also did with Dorky Archive, and of course Dorky Archive at that time were reissuing all of Quinn's novels. I came across Quinn, B.S. Johnson, the last book he published before he died, or the last book he wrote before he died, publishes this list of authors who were writing as though it mattered, as though they meant it to matter. Um, and Heppenstall was one of them. Some of them were people like Samuel Beckett, Anthony Burgess, Angela Carter, who, you know, anyone with any interest in literature will have come across. And there were some really obscure names on there. Um, and I just looked into all of them. And Anne Quinn, you know, just really interested me, just partly by dint of being from Brighton and, you know, from this sort of working class sort of fringes of the petty bourgeoisie. That interested me as well, and I sort of read that Berg was, was it's never named, but it was set in Brighton. And that really interested me as well. So I, um, I read Berg and just fell in love with it. The book is so funny. It's got the most brutal, like visceral sense of humour. It's incredibly bleak sense of humour. A lot of the uh, amusement in Berg comes from the fact that this father that Alistair Berg has gone to knock off um, is like this really crappy end of the pier entertainer, a horrible like two-bit ventriloquist, and there's an awful lot of humour in that. And as somebody who sort of grew up not too far from places like Brighton, had lots of seaside holidays in Britain. Um, we went to Torquay a lot uh, in the eighties um, with my family, and so you know I could find a lot of interest there. Um, but you know what sort of Quinn did a lot of the time in her writing, was used as sort of exploration of underground or marginal sexual practices to really kind of rupture like middle-class pieties. And as somebody who'd grown up in a Daily Mail household, that really appealed to me, um, you know, as growing up like middle-class and 
queer and, and trans and interested in sort of, you know, BDSM and alternative sexualities. So there was a lot in Berg that I, I liked. It rapidly became one of my favourite novels. I think I'm, in, I'm well into double figures in people I've bought copies of Berg for. There's probably several of you here tonight. Uh, so that really interested me. You know, sort of moving on, you know, Quinn expressed sort of dissatisfaction with Berg. It was too conventionally structured for her. She wanted to write something, I think a bit more like Natalie Saror in particular, whose novels are very kind of unstructured. They're very sort of stream of consciousness. Saror also wrote this, this great essay called The Age of Suspicion where in the early 60s, where she says that Sorot basically thought that readers just didn't believe that characters were anything other than sort of fragments of the author's consciousness. So the author might as well just kind of take that bull by the horns, which I think Quinn does in passages, and three in particular. You know, three was her second novel, uh, published in 1966, I think, when she was 30. And I, I would rate three, even more than Berg, actually, alongside The Blaze of Noon by Rainer Heppenstall and B.S. Johnson's Trawl as, I think, the best novels to come out of that, that circle of writing. Three, in contrast with Berg, uh, which opens with this very famous, well, very famous within Quinn's work, uh, opening line about this, this intended murder. Uh, three actually opens with this sort of equally powerful opening sentence. Uh, which just says, a man fell to his death from a sixth floor window of Peskett House, an office block in Selway Square today. So much like Berg, you're just thrown straight into this sort of situation of kind of great intrigue. And there's something quite cinematic about the way Quinn, it almost feels like she's pulling a camera back. Uh, and then she shows you a middle class couple, Ruth and Leonard. Um, and Ruth is reading this headline to Leonard. And it very becomes quickly very clear that the two of them are connected with a woman who's only known as S, who has recently drowned, and you, you don't know whether it's a suicide or an accidental death. You know, they're very traumatised by this death, and they're going through um, S's sort of papers and diaries and tape recordings that she's left behind. And so you think what you're getting is a character study of S, and of course you are, but what you're also getting is this just quietly, subtly eviscerating novel um, about the way, uh, the propensity that middle class people can have to try and exonerate themselves of their own kind of considerable guilt about the way the world works. And I, I speak from experience. Because um, the book is really about the way that Ruth and Leonard sort of observe and remember S and really try to um, make sense of the fact they both have romantic relationships with her. And this, of course, brings out the sort of patriarchal structure in which both S and Ruth were operating under. And you end the book with, with considerable sympathy, not just for S, but also for Ruth, and very, very little for, for Leonard. So I think Three is a really wonderful book, and I think you know, it deserves to be as sort of known within the, this sort of quote-unquote canon of British experimental literature as as Burke. Deborah talked about her own writing in relation to Quinn, and I'd like to, to do that briefly as well. Um, you know, Quinn uh, really gave the conf me the confidence to, firstly, to write about my own sort of sexuality and sexual desires and practices in a way that I think before reading Burke in particular, I found a lot harder. There's something very liberating about the um, 
some of the gender play in, in Berg and some of the sort of delineation of, of sexual desires in, uh, in three. And the, the honesty and openness of passages as well. There's an incredibly good... Uh, passages is, is, is one of Quinn's works I didn't quite get on so well with. There's an astonishingly acute moment in the book entitled Notebook of a Depressive, where Quinn just gives this kind of list of, of behaviours, like kind of going into unknown bars and avoiding her friends and, and all of these things. And, you know, at the time I was, I was having a particularly severe sort of depressive episode and it really clarified things for me uh, and Quinn was was a kind of writer who often just brought a lot of hazy things into focus for me I was always very grateful to her for that so if now is is the right time I'd like to read a little bit of a short story so I published a memoir uh, a couple of years ago that you know looked at my uh, sort of you know God, I hate this word so much, my kind of journey through... Um, it's in the headline of the Guardian thing I wrote. Um, but, you know, kind of journey through just like, not just kind of this process of gender reassignment, but of understanding trans identities, but also writing about them. And this was a process that owed an awful lot to, to writers like Anne Quinn. My editor didn't really want a book about reading Anne Quinn. That wasn't what I signed up for. It really was. I mean, I, I tried very hard, but they would have made me give the money back. Um, <laughs> But I got approached by um, the Catapult website uh, in the run-up to the publication of the book in 2015, and they said, we'd really like you to write something like related to the memoir. And I said, well, I don't want to just do a retread of the autobiographical material because I'm just sick of writing and talking about myself uh, despite appearances. I said, can I write a short story that explores some of the stuff that I wanted to include in the memoir about living in Brighton in the mid-noughties? that um, you know, I wanted to include, just didn't really fit the narrative. And I'd like to write a short story and you know, consciously play with the sort of tension between how much <coughs> of this material is biographical, which I think Quinn does in, in Passages and Three in particular. I mean, another very interesting thing about Quinn is that her first and last book have male narrators, um, and then Three sort of, you know, very deliberately sort of splits this narration or makes it quite hard to tell who's narrating. It's not like a sort of omniscient third-person narrator, but it's not a first-person either. It's, it's a really fragmented voice. But um, so the sort of, you know, the gender play in, in Quinn really interested me as well. So um, what I ended up writing was a, a short story called Weekend in Brighton, set in 2005. Um, there's a very subtle direct nod to Quinn. See if any of you can spot it. Patrick Berg. And today, as most <laughs> days, he was Patrick, not Trish. He hardly ever got to be Trish, at least not outside his own head. Walked down Buckingham Place towards the station. He stopped by the Bellevue pub and stared across the hills. So many terrace houses piled one atop another. They'd started building a hotel, its white concrete a riposte to the glass of the new Jubilee Library. That had an LGBT section at least, even if it was no match for Sussex's queer studies collection. But soon, anyway, the view would be ruined. The breeze hit his hairline, reminding him that it was starting to recede. I should buy a wig, he thought. Maybe that shop in Hove will have something. Then he thought about his overdraft, his student loan. Where would he find that 50 or 60 quid? Not from work, he thought, as he trudged across town towards his evening shift. He saw the Brighton and Hove Argus billboards at the station, trying to be wacky. But cod surrealist headlines like 
Mozart hip-hop makes Grandmaster Flash, had felt less amusing ever since that moment two months ago when he walked past and saw the huge crowds, every train cancelled, the words terrorists attack London offered by the local rag with uncharacteristic solemnity, a rare show of solidarity with the capital against which Brightonians often define themselves. He turned down Trafalgar Street. A portrait of John Peel had recently been painted on the side of the Albert pub, drawing attention away from that famous stencil of two policemen kissing each other just below it. He could never decide if he found that image charmingly romantic or tediously obvious. He looked wistfully at the second-hand bookshops, cafes and vintage clothes stores, and laughed at the young men in trilby hats and envied the women in polka dot dresses milling around the pubs in the mid-afternoon. He left the Nathan Barley types to their Shoreditch on sea and headed towards the office on Edward Street. He gazed momentarily at his office, the wedding cake as it was known, all steel girders, blue tinted glass and 45 degree angles. How could they waste such a dramatic building on something so fucking boring, he thought. He swiped in, took the lift to the second floor, got his file from the shelf, found an empty desk, turned on the PC and sat down. And then I'm going to skip a bit, which is he just fucks around on the internet for five hours. Um, <laughs> that bit's braced on a true story. <laughs> he decided not to go home yet. He crossed back into Kemptown after leaving the pub with, he's gone with people from work and he doesn't like them, um, and drifted into the Queen's Arms pub where he got a vodka and cranberry and sat in the corner. There were posters advertising drag queens but no entertainment tonight and barely any clientele, just a couple of couples and a younger guy with bleached crop hair who looked over and yelled, cheer up love, it might never happen. That sentence was always his cue to leave. He half smiled downed his drink and went out, wandered towards Charles Street and Arbar, the new joints by the seafront. A group of women in matching purple t-shirts were entering the latter. He turned back onto St James's Street where he tried the bulldog. It was dark and even quieter than the last place, but he could tell that it was Butch, where the Queen's arms had been femme, as their names had suggested. The looks from the leather-clad skinheads were no more welcoming than the ones he got from the Chelsea football fans in The King and Queen. A flyer caught his eye, a man's face covered in red latex, black rubber circling the eye and mouth holes in front of an attractive woman in a low-cut leather dress. Divinity at the Harlequin, it said. Fetish lounge and dance club. Fetish or fancy wear only. A few things ran through his mind, things he'd never told anyone about, let alone tried. Serving a group of people at a party, being led on a chain, tied and gags being put in the stocks and flogged. Tickets were available from the sex shop near the station or Ashley's and Hove. <laughs> mm. <laughs> what should we talk about? Probably Anne Quinn, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. She's very good. I mean, you should all read her. Um... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, one thing we were... We were mentioning in discussion uh, earlier, um, we were all talking about how all of us were interested in Anne Quinn and she was someone that we'd all discovered independently. And until quite recently, there wasn't really, there wasn't really a network for... A fan club. For, well, for people to find other people who'd read this writer because she wasn't someone who was being publicly talked about. That's what Twitter's for, then, isn't it? But exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's sort of where I was going with this. Oh, okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but that's, yeah, I feel like that's what Twitter's for now. But, I mean, it, it would be interesting to to maybe talk a bit more about, you know, I mentioned that B.S. Johnson had this sort of moment in the early noughties. There was Philip Chew's critical study of his work. There was Paul Tickell's film of Christy Mowry and Jonathan Coe's book. And it, it feels like there's some sort of moment is that around Anne Quinn. Moment? I mean, well, like, I never imagined we'd fill a bookshop talking about Anne Quinn. No, like, you said that I. to me ten years ago. I'm amazed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, and we were talking a little bit about what accounts for that. Shift, yeah. Right? And Deborah, you were a bit like, there hasn't been a shift at all. You were a little bit, a little bit less optimistic about the idea that something's <clears throat> changed. So. No, no. Oh, no. No, no, no not, not so much that. I mean, my, my, my interest in, in her is that she was a working-class avant-garde British writer. That was a very unusual thing to be. And, uh, and Anne Quinn, I mean, she'd be 88, something like that, a bit older. Uh, my maths isn't good. Born in 36, so, yeah. Um, anyway, quite old. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't it be great if she was sitting here tonight and we weren't, and she was sort of, you know, her books had been reprinted, and she hadn't sort of walked into the sea and never returned. It was just very lonely. With me, even with sort of that age gap between Quinn and myself, we didn't have, you know, when I started writing, we didn't have the internet. Yeah. So it's quite interesting that Quinn and myself were both published in the same magazines. A different generations. Um, Ambit, that was uh, Martin Bax. And London Magazine, that was Alan Ross. When I was a student, I was writing short stories on a typewriter, carbon, carbon between paper, piece of paper. My children don't even know what carbon paper is, you know, between, between two pieces of A4 to make a copy, banging my Olivetti. Mm. And then I would send it to Alan Ross, and he would send back my stories, and he wrote Tosh <laughs> across them. <laughs> And this infuriated me, just on the level of class, not really anything else. Tosh, no one had said that to me ever. How dare you say Tosh? 
But I just kept on rewriting that particular story. It was called Heresies. And in those days, you can't do that anymore. You can't just sort of keep rewriting a story and submitting it. But actually, to Alan Ross's credit, he liked the re third rewrite. <laughs> and he said, come to lunch. I'm publishing it. And I told all my students, it's all, you know, I'm off. I'm off to have lunch with the editor who worked with Sylvia Plath and Christopher Isherwood. I'm off. And I arrived in London. He took me out to a Chinese restaurant. He, uh, he didn't ask me what I wanted. He ordered a gin and tonic for both of us, a very warm gin and tonic. And then he showed me pictures of his racehorse. Like he had a racehorse, showed me photos. And I thought we were going to have this great talk about literature. Mm. So Anne Quinn, I mean, I'm just some, I'm just sort of, I don't know. He must, Alan Ross must still have been editing that. She might have had something similar, right? So that's incredible. And it was just a being a little bit less lonely. I didn't really like the stories at the time in London Magazine that much. But there were a few that I did, and I liked Alan. And uh, same with Martin Bax, who later became a good friend. And J.G. Ballard was on the editorial board for fiction. And he probably wasn't on the board when Quinn was around. And he would actually write me hand, you know, notes, saying, I'll stop writing plays, just concentrate on fiction. So that was the, that was the, that was the sort of atmosphere then. It was terribly lonely mm. um, to be the kind of writer that I was, and, mm. and I think Quinn was. Not that there's really very much similarity in my view between the work, but there's a there's, there's a sort of similarity in its audaciousness, given the other work at the time, and so I'm, I am very moved that Jennifer worked so hard to, in a rather terrifying way, find all that early work. Terrifying? Yeah, just terrifying to a well, writer. What a cold calling. No, terrifying to a writer to think that someone yeah. actually might do that. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but you know, um, this, is, th this book here is in conversation with all the other books for new generations of readers. And, um, and that is, can't be anything but an excellent thing. But I, I find that interesting, uh, like you talked about Anne Quinn's love of the short story form. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I completely agree, like all of her novels, and more so I think as you go along, mm. have a sort of quite fragmentary feel to them. And it, it really, they do feel like the works of somebody who was very interested in short stories and short fiction and wanted to write that as well. You know, it would have been, you know, we could, we, could have be, we could be sitting here talking about the reissue of all of Quinn's novels, but, you know, instead we, we have a set of texts. Um, that have never been published. They've never been published, yeah. but also, you know, they're, they're, they're all short texts, they're all fragments. They're fragments of unpublished novels, yeah. or they're, you know, fragmentary pieces. And I just find it interesting that we are talking about a book on a publisher that's been launched, you know, one of many independent publishers to appear in the last sort of seven or eight years mm. um, and publishing a sort of short story form you know historically um, like publishers you know will always say short fiction doesn't sell people don't want it 
and a lot of these British experimental writers were like kryptonite to publishers. When I was working on um, Trans and Memoir with Universo, it was a reasonably left field publisher. My editor nearly kicked me out for talking about B.S. Johnson in the first editorial meeting, and he just, you know, thumped the desk and said, You're not putting it in a box. Yeah. You're not cutting holes in the pages. You're not carving the chapters onto the bark of Estonian forests. Um, it's interesting you say that. Yeah. It's like when you read the, the reviews at the time of Quinn's novels, I mean, Berg was received quite warmly, but it's incredible the amount of hostility mm. um, critics build up about experimental about what is perceived as experimental fiction. Like such, such like hostility and like genuine like. They, they see it as a genuine threat. The idea of it seeing experimental fiction as like a genuine threat mm. is like is bizarre to me. And they get so angry if they feel the experiment doesn't work. And it's like, well, the clue's in the name. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole point of an experiment is it carries the sort of risk of failure. And like, I would rather have you know all of those works of those kind of quote unquote experimental writers that I wrote earlier, and I'd rather just have the ones that don't work at all so that we get the ones that do. Question yeah. time. Oh, yeah, it's question time now. <laughs> I just want to say, um, well, firstly, thanks, um, Jen, I guess, for doing this, because I guess if you hadn't had the tenacity to pursue this, this book wouldn't exist, and I think that's kind of incredible that it kind of does take one person who's passionate about a writer to make kind of this happen. And I think that's kind of a really wonderful thing to sort of think about. But I guess in a more general way, obviously Anne Quinn means a lot to you. I guess I'm interested in what you think her short stories add to a kind of contemporary... I mean, we've talked a bit about how the short story is valued these days or, you know, the kind of forms that it takes. And I just wondered what you think her style, if she does have any kind of style in terms of her short stories, can add to a kind of... Because in a way, it's a contemporary book because they haven't been published, I guess? Yeah, it's been like sort of ripped out of context and then implanted back here. Yeah, so I just wondered what, if you could speak to that a bit and what for you is important about this in a more sort of... Yeah. yeah in that way. Well, you know, um, having carried these stories around in a folder for seven years, I'm somewhat immersed in this work. And so I'm, I'm like, when I say that I hear echoes of Anne Quinn, like throughout contemporary writing, that might be because I've completely lost it. Um, uh, which, yeah, but um, there is, you know, like, I guess when you do a perverse project like this, you're often asked, yeah, but what's the contemporary significance? And you're asked that so much that I've, I've begun to sort of resent the question in a way. I'm kind of like, well, fuck off, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, of course, it does matter. Yeah, it seems to me that Anne Quinn, like, sits almost too perfectly within within a trajectory that goes through, you know, someone like Kathy Acker, Chris Krause, and then this kind of, like, recent sort of, I guess you could call it even a resurgence in, in um, more innovative forms of, of fiction and, and short fiction, and especially by women, like, people like Eamon McBride and Claire Louise Bennett, I, like, I, I know that they haven't read Quinn up to now, but I can't believe it. Like, the, 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 the echo is so strong in, in their work. But apparently they haven't, so there must be something in the water. It's a kinship rather than a, an influence thing. Well, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, we could talk about the contemporary relevance of Anne Quinn's work and why now. But why now? Because like, it's good writing that people don't know about and they should. And, like, maybe that's enough. I think why this book is important 
is because it plays against that idea taught in so many, say, creative writing MAs, many of whom, which are very good, where, where, where sort of students are given the kind of health and safety precautions <laughs> not to get published. Mm. And, um, and so we have a sort of abundance of, of coherence. We just murdered with coherence before the work can actually open its eyes. You know, the work dies before it can open its eyes and really stare at the world. So Quinn didn't have that fear. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. One of the things about experimental work is that there's no, it's never really discussed calmly. It's either trashed mm -hmm. or triumphed. So a sort of calm, calm, sort of critical discussion about this is a very good question that you asked about what's going on needs, needs to happen because, because experimental work is, so, is usually so trashed. Means that we all run to defend it like a mm. family. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't say that about my sister. <laughs> Although secretly, I think some of what you say might be right. <laughs> uh, no, we just sort of run to defend it. Mm. And then the other thing about uh, avant garde work is that there's always a sort of row in the family about who's more avant garde or who's more experimental. Never get sick it's of that. It's a bit like arguing, like, you know, who's a better Christian? And um, I think that's a shame as well, because um, the avant-garde has a very stiff upper lip when it comes to feeling anything. It really doesn't like emotions very much, you know. Andre Breton is there crossing his arms, oh, no, 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 no. Um, all, that, all that sort of obedience is... Uh, needs to stop. Mm. You know, you can get stuck in a kind of writing behavior to answer your question. Whether it's experimental, whether it's naturalistic, you can just get stuck in a stuck in it. But I think she was getting out of that. I, I, I think if she had she had a short writing life and I would have liked her to write work that was closer closer to herself in an odd way, despite everything that Juliet said. Just a little less, you know. I think she, I think what I most want for her want for her is to have had a bit of money in a house, and um, not to have been living with her mother, and not to have been so devastated. Just living, that would have been good for Anne Quinn. I, I want to say, come back, come back, Anne Quinn, come. for that long, long swim. To write that book, that's that's closer, closer, mm. closer to yourself. Yeah, can I just add something mm. to that? Which is that you know what interests me about Anne Quinn, um, and what interests me about this collection and the the archival work that Jen's done, but also the interviewing of surviving acquaintances that you've done, is that for a lot of the people I've mentioned, particularly B. S. Johnson and, and Rainer Heppenstall, they left an awful lot of ways that you could get to know them besides their novels, like Johnson made television programs, sort of documentaries about his own work, documents about other people's work that are full of his personality. Like Rainer Heppenstall, for example, wrote an awful, like several volumes of memoir about his life in writing, about his life in broadcasting, as well as some of his journals and a lot of journalism. 
Anne Quinn didn't really leave anything of that. There's like one very short recording of her mm. reading from three, I think. Mm. She did um, have a short-lived gig with the Scotsman newspaper writing like dispatches from her various travels because for all at the end of her life she did end up living with her mum and taking care of her mum. <coughs> she had a really good in- innings of it for years. You yeah. know, she, she every advance she got she would... Um, Travel. She would... Well, I was going to say piss up the wall, but that's not the case. She would spend really wisely traveling to Mexico, New Mexico, living in New York, San Francisco, the Bahamas, Greece, Ireland. You know, the end of her life, things got really difficult, but she had a really good run at things, and she had a really good time as well. Um, You know, also... I was talking to John Calder just before he died about um, Anne Quinn, and uh, he said that... uh, what really excited her most was traveling, and that she was always asking for advances. She was. Uh, Red letters, yeah. like letters. Advances. <laughs> They're really good. Just to catch a train, he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the tail of that, I think all writers should always be asking for advan- advances myself. Um, I really enjoyed that discussion. Thank you very much. I thought all three of you fantastic. Um, my question is, you've Several, you've all actually talked about positioning her within the kind of modernist slash avant-garde bookshelf. <laughs> I'm interested to know what she read, though. I mean, is it a bit too easy to sort of put her into this, into this group? Mm. What were her influences? No. And I wondered if maybe the reason that she has this sort of... I mean, I've read about half the book now, and I just feel the sort of force of energy. I don't know whether it's experiment. I don't... I don't might be experimental, might be avant-garde. I just think it's, ri- like you say, really fantastic writing, full of energy, and I feel very liberated by her work as a, her as a woman writer, as mm. a female author. But I would like to know a bit more, Jen, about her reading. Do, do you know about that? Yeah, well, actually, uh, on the Anquid Facebook page, which is curated by uh, a poet from New-, New Mexico called Larry Goodall, who's a really enthusiastic advocate of her work, uh, he's put he's actually scanned in her old reading list because she used to type out her reading list, and it's more full of like the classics than you think. Mm. I mean, she was she was a fan of Natalie Sarrat, and she was really into last year at Marion Bard, but she read you know she read the classics, um, mm-hmm. yeah, in in the main <clears throat> she read a lot of like psychology textbooks as well and a bit of psychoanalysis, but it was canon stuff. I mean. The thing, the thing with Quinn is that you know she left school at six, sixteen. She went to secretarial college, and far be it for me to make some kind of narrative about her being some sort of like you know typist savant who like you know gender up on the staff list at the publishers she was worked, working at. That's bullshit. I'm not, I'm not into that. But you know she didn't have a training in the canon, but she was really keen to read that stuff. Another really important influence and something that we haven't talked about is the fact that as soon as she got some money, she went to the States and she went and found a community, you know, that sense of loneliness that we were talking about pre-Twitter. She went out and found her community and she lived in New Mexico. Uh, She had the D.H. Lawrence Fellowship at the University of New Mexico and she hung around with American language poets. Some of them were her lovers, some of them were her mates, but she was really, really ensconced in, in that community in the States. You know, she called herself a poet rather than a novel writer and they, they were her, they were, that was her artistic community for years. Yeah, she hung out with Robert Creeley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she did. Um, I don't know why that makes me laugh. <laughs> I really don't. It's she just um, Anne Quinn and Robert Creeley. She didn't just hang out with him. I know. <laughs> <laughs> she read R.D. Lang. 
So that was so the divided self. That was you can sort of see, feel that kind of coming through some of the writing. Yeah, of course it was. Of course it was the canon. She had a serious. She just had serious literary purpose. She took herself seriously as a writer in the right way, as she, as, as she should have. Um, that she was arty. She was sort of um, arts arts for bohemian. Mm. Um, well, that's that's another interesting thing because you know she was a secretary of the RCA, yeah. she, but she she, I mean she she ghost wrote. There's a, a New Zealand pop artist called Billy Apple. She ghost she ghost wrote his entire dissertation whilst working as a secretary. Do you know what I mean? She's like she's never quite in there. She's always in the margins. She was working working as a secretary, and yet she was kind of immersed in this. And this guy is still a, a practicing artist living in New Zealand. He's a you know he's got a profile. He's a pop artist. And she, she wrote everything that he did, his dissertation. <laughs> and he passed. So she did get a degree in the end, and she just, yeah. We, we, um, you're talking about B.S. Johnson, of course, uh, and various other avant-gardists also tried to move into theatre. Do we know if Anne Quinn attempted to do any work in drama? She wanted uh, to be an actress. Yeah, she did apply to Art Rada, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, she, wrote, she wrote radio plays. And uh, she even had a go at writing a television sitcom, I think, but I've, I've never seen sight nor sound of them. I've, I've never been able to, to find them in any archive. Acting didn't work out for her for reasons that are explained, explained in Leaving School, the first story in there. So, but I don't think she ever picked up the theatre again, apart from the, the radio plays and things like that. So Jen's going to go around the world finding all her radio plays. <laughs> Please, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to sit in an archive anymore. I don't belong there. <laughs> Can I, can I just add something that we were talking about downstairs, which sort of links back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, about finding a community of readers for a writer like Anne Quinn mm, mm. and finding a way of persuading publishers that people will read and we will buy books by an author like Anne Quinn. Because Jen and I were both reading Anne Quinn back in 2005. And we talked about this, and I started to know anyone else who read Anne Quinn, no one else who knew her work, let alone liked it. And Jen said, well, you should have come to Norwich. <laughs> Which is not Which something is you say very was. often. <laughs> and I said, well, I was coming to Norwich all the time, but I was going to, to football matches. And Jen said I was working at the stadium, working, selling pies. Selling pies. Yeah. So I would have bought pies off Jen. <laughs> But, you know, because of the sort of lack of community of networks behind that, <laughs> I didn't know that both I, I pie seller and pie eater. I wasn't wearing my Isle of Anne Quinn t-shirt. No, no, I wasn't. And Norwich City weren't sponsored by Anne Quinn or any of her publishers. Um, but, you know, I find it really interesting that, you know, sort of 10 years later, we can be on a thing like Twitter and you can just throw out all the time interests in like very, very marginal things. Mm. And even on a network like that, a lot of the time I felt I was spitting in the wind. But, you know, you do find your way to, to readers and to, to publishers, because I think it's the interplay between publishers, readers and writers all being on this same sort of network and all being able to share such a vast range of interests in, in real time that I think makes something like this possible. And that's the most optimistic you're ever going to hear me be <laughs> about <laughs> Twitter. <end> but um, <laughs> I'm happy to end there. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, give our guests um, such a big, big thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah, Jen, and Julia. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk 
forward slash events.